Welcome to the Leader Manager Coach Podcast, where we share knowledge, philosophies, wisdom, and insight to help you on your journey in both sport and life. Introducing your host, Rob Riles. Hello and welcome to Leader Manager Coach Podcast. Welcome along. It's Rob Riles welcoming you to another edition. Now, in today's program, I'm very fortunate that um, all the way across the pond from the United States, I've got somebody that I've um, come across and um, we've decided to, to hook up because we think we've got um, something to offer the listeners. Now, um, I'm going to be speaking to a guy called Kevin Hannigan, and Kevin is a data literacy advocate. He is an author of multiple books, including one that I absolutely love the title of, Turning Data into Wisdom. And you know how much uh, we kind of um, love wisdom on this podcast. Um, he's currently a chief learning officer at Click, a data and analytics company, as well as the chair of the advisory board for the Data Literacy Project. Um He's got a list as long as your arm of things he can help us with. Um, things like overcoming self-sabotage, um, understanding what resilience is, avoiding burnout, uh, cognitive bias challenges, understanding active and passive listening, the difference between the two, and how we can use these aspects and skills to improve our work lives, uh, the success of our projects and everything we do. So without further ado and taking up more time, I'd like to introduce you to Kevin Hannigan. Hello, Kevin. Welcome to Leader Manager Coach. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to this one. It's a good topic for sure. Okay. So um, look, I've got some specific questions, but before I kind of get into that, um, just for our listeners, just give us like a, a, a short bio on like, um, how you got to get involved and become an expert in in your field, Kevin? That'd be a great start. Yeah, it's it, it's been an interesting turn. Actually, undergraduate, I was I was a technical geek. I was a computer science major, so did a lot of programming, and just happened to realize as I was going up the the ranks in corporate settings that there's everyone's dealing with the same thing, whether it's in personal life or whether in work. We're all exposed to like things in the news, data, information. And whether we know it or not, our brains are getting tired of seeing it all. And what that means is we're we're making less than ideal decisions. We're believing things to be true that aren't true. And it just kind of fascinated me. Um, combine that with I have four kids. One of them is, it has autism and just has a completely different perspective on how to see the world. It got me thinking a lot more about like psychology, how the brain works to make decisions, how bias impacts us. You know, people talk about um, sports and using data and analytics and all these things. It's great, but sometimes it's not great because you don't know how to use them. You don't know how to interpret them. And I'm lucky enough to work for a software company that does data and analytics. And it, it allows me to, you know, teach people how to use the product. But at the same time, it allows me to teach people these human skills of, of don't be scared of data. It's here to stay. And it's really, you don't need a statistics degree you kind of just need critical thinking and sometimes common sense but we all get freaked out and worry about it and uh, i i like advocating that it's not a scary topic when when you know some of these basic principles wonderful um that relates very closely to I, i've i've looked closely at the bibliography in your in your turning data into wisdom book uh, and that's a favorite thing of mine because it kind of often gives you a flavor of how much research that the author's done and, and what kind of what what's their inspiration behind it and i have to say it's pretty phenomenal um you seem to be a very widely read person uh and and not just in data but like th there's a lot of psychology in in there which is phenomenally interesting yes. um and i think that's one of the things that really attracted me to you so because i i I would say that there is a void, maybe you're the one who's who, who's filling this, in that link between a human psychology at its basic level uh, and the, all the, the data that now we are completely overwhelmed with. And, and maybe it's, it's that bridge that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like your, your book kind of 
is the thing that fills that that gap and your your knowledge is the thing that we're all looking for and maybe readers who haven't got had a chance to read your book don't actually know that that's the thing that maybe is one of the missing links in making life easier and possibly you know more successful i hope so i think so like like you said it, it there's a there's the psychology aspect I, I think one of the things that scares people is they hear data and like oh my god numbers well data isn't just numbers it's it's information and and so think about you know everyone listening all the information that you see if you don't understand how our brains process that you are more applicable to use it in the wrong way like just a very common example um studies that are done all the time is is I'm not wearing one today but let's just say today I was wearing a pink shirt I'm wearing a blue shirt and I make a very clear point that I'm wearing a pink shirt why I'm doing that deliberately is now I'm trying to tell your brain hey pink shirt's relevant when people go home that week they're going to see more people with pink shirts they're not really seeing more people with pink shirts they've told their brain it's relevant if they never saw some of the pink shirt, they're not going to say it. It, it, it. It's about focusing your brain on what's relevant to you. And then it, you see all these other things that are relevant. It, it doesn't bring in. Same thing with a car. If I'm looking at a car and I want to buy a white van, I'm going to see more white vans on the street because I told my brain it's relevant. So we're exposed to all this data and sports and life and COVID and everything. And if we don't tell the brain, hey, what's relevant for me, you're going to see a data point and you're going to say, aha, there's my answer. Problem is it's probably answering a question that you're not really asking and you stop interrogating it and you stop looking for the questions that you're really asking. And none of that that I'm talking about, that process has to do with data and numbers. It has to do with understanding why it's relevant to you, the so what, and what do you do about it and how do you make decisions with it? So am I right in, in hearing you and saying that the precursor of, of, of all this erupt so forget the data for a minute is the precursor in your in your opinion the questions that we ask is that the starting point so having the correct question it is the foundation of, of of what data we focus on what data we use what data we look for is that right or is is there something that's else? how i see it i mean there's generally two ways to look at it there's the approach where you are given a haystack of data and in everyone listening right in sports you see the, see data all over the place and then someone says find me something useful that's a wild goose chase right and, and you don't know what you're looking for i mean how do you find a treasure without a map right you just stumble across it that i don't want to go through life stumbling across finding something the, the other way to do it is start you said start with the question start with the goal and, and this isn't just work. This is like, what do I want to do with my life? What are, what are my priorities? What are my goals? Ask questions from that and then look for the data that helps you validate that or invalidate that. And what that tells the brain is focus on this. And so it takes everything out and, and ignores the rest, which makes it easier. You don't get as overloaded. But when we don't start with the question and we're throwing all of this data in the news, the TVs everywhere, the brain's like, oh my God, I don't, I don't know what's wrong. I don't know what I'm going to try to process it all. And then we just overheat, we we burn out and we just feel fatigued. And a lot of times it just means we either ignore everything, which isn't good, or we focus on something that really isn't important to us. So, so that takes us back to that fundamental process um, of goal setting, which start with, you know, begin with the end in mind, know what it is you want. And, and from that, you will formulate, hopefully, the, the correct question. Then, um, and, and I'm assuming, well, I'm a bit of a logical thinker here, and, and it sounds like maybe you're, with all your data life, you're, you're, you're possibly the same. Um, then you, once you've asked the correct question, you, you you then follow to the next step, which is, you know, find, find the, the right answer. So, how do we go about if it's not a stupid question? Because I, one of the things I hear from the, my fellow colleagues is, is they might not say the word Kevin, but they say I'm. A, it's an overwhelmed situation. It, it, it's it, it's overwhelmed, and some people don't talk about it. They just kind of plow through it, but don't make headway. And other people will verbalize it. Um, how do we that process if that's not a too um, low resolution question. 
It's not. It, it's an important question. And I think what's why it's challenging is a lot of people think of questions as a you know discrete point in time. It's a process. So questions give new questions and give new questions. And it's all about the speed that you process that. So when people either get overwhelmed, they don't know where to start. I my goal is start very high level and then have those questions give you detail. So hypothetical, if if talking about not work or, or sports, but life, like if my goal for data is I want my my question is I I want to live as long to see my grandkids play, right? Well, how do I answer that? Okay, I, I need to go deeper. Okay, well, what does that mean? What are the factors that will help me? And maybe I say, okay, well, I need to lower my heart risk. And then I start looking down and finding out, okay, well, that means I need exercise, need diet, all these things. Those then focus your brain on this is what I'm going to focus on. Um, but it's all about balance. And just using this example, that's why switching to diets, they don't work because you're fo uber focused on this and you're not balancing your system. So long story short, it's an iterative process. You're going to fail more times than you're going to succeed. But if you keep going down and learning more, you're going to get to what's your goal. Um, and I don't know if this movie translates over, over across the pond, but Moneyball, right? A lot of people think the story is about statistics and analytics. No, that's the easy part. If you notice, there was that one scene where they're all in the room and in the, the lead role says, my question, my goal is, I want on-base percentage. I want this one metric. Now at that time, and like if you don't know baseball, it's not a big deal. Everyone didn't look at that. Everyone was like, well, I look at the player. They need to be big. They need to be tall. They need to, he's like, I look at on-base percentage. How many times do they actually get on base? That's my metric. From there, the statistics were easy. The reason it yeah. hadn't happened before that is no one was asking the right question. This person was like, wow, I'm going to ask the right question. And the statistics became easy. Like anyone could do it. It was really the fact that he said, I don't care if they're six feet two. I don't care if they're 210 pounds or kilos, whatever. I just want on base percentage. And it took probably two or three years for him to filter down to get to that question. But once he got there, like they won, they won all the games. Like it, that's the hardest part is, is finding the right question and not getting overwhelmed. If you don't have it the first time, it's an iterative process. Yeah, so it, it, that that's a beautiful kind of little story that takes us back to the power of asking asking the right questions. So um, let me move on to decision-making because um, a lot of people in their work are tasked with making decisions. So um, in whatever, whatever aspect you may be, have to fire somebody you may have to, to to recruit somebody you may have to decide which organization you go with for a project you may have to decide whether you apply for this position that position so whatever the decision is um i i speak to a lot of people who sit on the fence who who don't make find decision making easy have you got and again please excuse my low resolution question and asking for for bullet points that sum up things that are often far too complex for that. So please excuse me, but do you have any any advice for, for decision-making in particular? Although we may be talking about decision-making with everything, but, you know, when you've got to make that decision and people have sleepless nights and they... Yeah. They, they write two lists, a positive and a negative, and end up going with their gut anyway. Kevin, um, where do you come from on that? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. And just one thing about the gut, which is often misunderstood. I think it's important people will know that the gut, the instinct, when you say I have an intuition, there's some people like it, it's it's voodoo magic. Like it's just you like spitballing. Hey, let's, what's actually happening is something happened to you many times in the past and it's stored in your brain's memory but it's completely unconscious to you. You don't remember it. And then the brain takes the input and says, oh, okay, back in 1982, this happened. It was similar. It's a, it's a computer. It found this and this was my output. And so my gut says, do this. And you don't know where it came from. It's actually your brain telling you what the answer was 20 years ago. The problem is a lot of things change in life and sports, games evolve. So you have to check it. Um, but to, to answer the other question, it's it's a process. So one of the things that I, I struggle when I, I see people, they they 
don't want to fail. So analysis paralysis, they sit on the fence is they, they don't know. So they don't make a decision. The problem is Ben Franklin, I don't want to steal his quote, but when you fail, you learn from it. And, and the challenge is taking it out of life and going into work, like look at sporting managers, they fail, they get fired. They, so they don't want to fail, right? Because the the consequences, maybe I don't get a second year or a third year to, to see the results. But let's take an example of where it's done well, medical field, right? You go to the doctor and you give them some symptoms. You say, I have a cold, I have a fever, I have a headache. The, the doctor is going to do what they call a differential, which is basically in their head, they're going to say, this person is everything from a common cold to like a bacteria virus to like a deadly disease. And they learn more by doing um, more testing, questioning, and they filter down. They're never going to filter the point unless it's a test that can positively ID it. They're going to say, you have one of these two things. We're going to treat it for A. We're going to see if it reacts. If it doesn't, we're going to treat you for B. If they treat it for A and it didn't work, technically they failed, but they didn't because they learned it's not A. So let's go with B. We don't think like that. We tend to think, okay, if I go with A and it fails, I lose my job, I lose my friends, I'm hopeless, I, I'm no good at decision-making, I'm a failure. It's all about reframing it as I fail so many times, I'm actually proud of it because I know what's not for me. The best decision I made was realizing going into work, I'm not meant to be a computer scientist. Did I fail that I spent four years learning in university? No, it, it took four years to realize what I didn't want to do. Now I know what I want to do. It, it's a step in the journey. And I think people that are analyzed in paralysis, they fear that they got it wrong. But don't think of it getting wrong. Think of it as a step in the learning process. Absolutely. And it's really interesting how we keep coming back to fundamentals that aren't actually or don't appear to be directly related to figures on paper. Um, you know, exactly. your story there relates back to a fear of failure which you know you go to any psychology book and, and self-help book and, and that somewhere along the line that will that will will come into it so yeah it, it's so interesting um so here we are and the story is professional football or soccer if you like it in in the uk in the world anywhere in the us um and we now have a system whereby, and it's probably, I'm sure it's exactly the same, if not if not um, even more evolved um, for American football, where the game is videoed and the games can be clipped and analysed. And, and we know how many yards the players ran. We know how many touches they had. We almost know how many sidesteps they did, how many tackles they made, who ran the furthest who made the most gains, the most throws, whatever it is. Um, and again, is it a question, Kevin, of going knowing which, which piece of data you want um, rather than gathering as much as you can? Because I still think we're still in that phase in, in, in the UK in professional football of gathering we think it's sexy to gather more data because we're yep. still in that growth phase but i think that it's about filtering and the questions that, that you've already alluded to well here's a good example and i like so they track everything one of the metrics you mentioned is is the amount of the distance travel in the field kilometers traveled by a player so you could argue that some people might say the more distance traveled, the better. Like they're they're in the game. They're not taking time off. You could also argue that they were out of place and maybe they're making up time and, and maybe they weren't strategically in the right location. And so looking at someone that travels less, you might argue, well, they were in the right position. So so which one is it? And, and I'm not a coach, I don't know, but the point is that's the problem is if you don't have the right question, you're looking at the data and you're coming up with an assumption. I'm thinking, my, this person ran 10 miles during the game. This person did six. 10 is better than six. Could mean that person was way out of position. Could mean that they were trailing and they kept coming back to cover other people. It's not necessarily a good or a bad thing. So it, it goes back to the on-base percentages. You have to understand as the coach, and that's the thing, and as fans, you know the game. You know what's good and bad. Start with the question. I want to understand these metrics 
Um, and maybe there's times where it tells you like the GPS and you can track who's on sides, who's not on sides. You can track when they're clustered together too close. But if you don't know the game, you're just looking at this data and you're like, wow, this is all, like you said, sexy. But the problem is then you start making decisions with it that actually don't lead to the outcome. The outcome I'm assuming in most games is to win, unless you're doing it for sport, it's to have fun. But most times it's to win. What metric there coincides with winning? That's where statistics comes in. As you can tell, like in baseball, it was on base. There's probably some combination there. Once that figure is cracked, all the other data becomes a novelty as you can use it for fantasy football. And you can say, who ran the most? Who got the most exercise? But until you know what directly leads to scoring more goals, it's just yeah. novelty data. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a few years ago, when when um, data and analytics was becoming more available and it was reasonable in terms of cost and clubs started to employ people to be analysts um there were a lot of and i'll use the term old school managers and coaches who were understandably extremely skeptical and said look you know i've been in the game for 40 years 30 years i'll tell you what's going on i don't need a load of figures to to tell me how good it is um does that kind of thing do you recognize that if it's not a silly question again from other other areas of life and industry and commerce and things like that um from your experience kevin or is that a common concern where people think um i suppose it's like going back to the early industrial revolution when people thought i'm going to get lose my job here because i'm going to get taken over by a machine you know that is the fear, right? And and that's the thing that I, I like educating people is that going back to Moneyball, the, the statistics is easy. It's coming up with what is the metric I want to use. A computer can't do that. Humans have to do that. And so it's not directly translated. But in, in American football, we have this after you score a point, you have this choice. You can kick a ball for one point or you can run the ball for two points. And people used to never run for two points. They're like, you um, then we got all the data and data shows in certain conditions, like 52% of the time you succeed for two points. Okay. So old school coaches say, you know what? I'm not going to do it because I've never done it before. The new school coaches do it. Now, if it doesn't work, they don't get fired, but all the fans are like, oh, why do you, it's, it's the, the data said over time it works. And it just goes back to what I said, as long as you're not going to get fired the next day and you're given enough runway, the data is going to help you win the game. The problem we have in society today is not everyone watching is informed on what data and why they're doing it. And I guess that's why press conferences are there is they can explain themselves. But we have the same thing. And we're seeing those more and more coaches now are the new school ones because they're actually using data. But what they're doing is they're not blindly following it. There's also the context of, well, it doesn't make sense in this situation because Johnny has a bad leg and the bad leg doesn't factor in the data and the wind's going in the other direction. And so they weigh all these things real time. And that's what makes the coach great is they use the data as like a basis, but then they build the human element on top of it. Computers will not be able to add in the human element ever. Yeah. It sounds like, like a lot of things that um, data is a great servant, but a bad master kind of thing, you know, it's a hundred percent. So there's yeah. a study done, the, a grand chess master um, from Russia built an AI computer and the AI computer would routinely, you know, beat sub-average, average people. Um, but when it went after like grandmasters, it, it would lose. And so then they had a, a challenge. They said, okay, we're going to pair an AI computer with an average chess player. So the human element plus the computer, it beat every chess master known to man because it was the combination. And the, the moral of the story was, it's not the data and the computer, it's the data plus the human. So we're not taking over by data. We just need to learn how to use it properly. And I think that's what we're trying to educate is how do we use it properly? Yeah, so is that kind of, does that little story sum up your, 
your role, your 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 focus. I mean, I'm please excuse me. I'm not trying to simplify it, what what you do, but no, no, that- no, it's all good. Yeah, that is my passion. Exactly, is how do we marry the technology advances? Because don't get me wrong, the comp- if you took that that regular chess person, they're not going to win any match. They need the data, they need the automation, they need the technology. But that's my passion: is how do we marry those two so they work well together. Um, it's not something we're trained in schools. It's not something we learn over time. It, it's not something that's been relevant up until like the past five or six years. Like you said, there's data everywhere and it's kind of a novelty until we really realize how to use it. And like you said earlier, and what I try to preach, using it doesn't mean being a statistician. It, it probably means more about psychology than it does about statistics. Well, okay, here's one. So talking to a guy like yourself who you know is, is, a, is a leader in, in understanding data and using it and isn't hasn't got any fears about it how do you use it in your own life to make your life as good as you can give us a story about how it's helped you in your in your life that's not a, an intrusive question kevin no it's not i'll give you two ones like the obvious one is now anywhere i go on vacation or family goes on vacation data, right? I go on uh, Airbnb and I look for reviews. I go on Amazon before I buy a coffee maker. I look for reviews. I, I use that social crowded network. Now, if I, this is where the human element, if the first review comes up and says, don't ever do that. It, it's the worst place in the world. It's Do I listen to it? It's in my head, but do I just listen to it? No, I look at other reviews because that person might have a different question. They might've wanted peace and quiet, whereas I want fun nightlife and bars right? It all depends on the question you're asking. So that's kind of how I use it. But I, I think another fascinating point about data, and I'll, I'll give a, a personal story about my oldest son. I mentioned he has autism. So he he had, when he was a lot younger, he had a lot of behaviors in school, um, like destructive behaviors and, and disruptive. And so the, the school, you know, thinking they know data and statistics, they put this chart together and they said, your son has, you know, exponentially growing behaviors we, we have to do something. We have to kick him out of school. And knowing data, myself, I look at the data. I'm like, okay, he had, you know, 10 occurrences this week, 15, 20, 25. It's, it's going up, but it's all about challenging. And to your question before, so what? So why is he doing it? So we dug in a little deeper and we asked the school what's happening before, what's happening after. Long story short, when he would do it, they would send him to the principal's office. All the years I've done in statistics couldn't help me answer that. But knowing how to use data and ask the right question of why is he doing it? The problem was the assumption that people made with the data is kids do not like going to the principal. They see it as a punishment. My son loves going to adults. He loves it. So I go home and I'm smiling. I'm like, hey, hey, what happened? It's like, oh, it was great that I kicked the teacher they sent me to the principal. She read to me for an hour. I think I'm going to punch her tomorrow. Now, again, I've had decades of experience in wow. data and math. The teachers did stuff which were logical, rational, but the decision-making failed because they didn't challenge their assumption, their assumption that kids don't like going to the principal's office. If, if that's wow. not a good story of why this is impactful for people, and I, I didn't need to be a statistician. My wife saw the same thing. She's like, you kidding? Why are you sending him to principal? He loves that. It, it's about knowing your business, applying the data that's relevant, asking the right questions like why, and, and challenging your assumptions. So that's how it's I use a, it. After that, I use it. It's in beautiful. It, it's yeah. absolutely beautiful. Um, I absolutely love it. I mean, talk about talk about summing up your quality of your life's work and, and actually putting it into practice and, and getting a gold nugget out of it. It, um, it, it, in, a, in a personal story in 30 seconds that, that's 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 fantastic pure data yet plus the human element of understanding it's um, okay so here's something else I, I'd like to ask your opinion on um, and this is just an example okay so I think most people are very aware of the current climate change environmental narrative that's going on at the moment. I think if you if you're not, you know, there's you, you're probably not in listening to any news, or maybe it's not, you know, you're not capable of doing that. But um, 
And I'm hearing stories and that we've got the world's leading scientists who are busy burying, you know, burying their heads in 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 whatever they look at, carbon and trees and and and, and uh, nature and ice caps and so on. And these guys and ladies are spending months and years doing stuff and, and writing complex reports and and, and 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 data, you know, that's I don't know, thousands of pages long in reports that they, they're coming up. And then in order for governments to kind of be able to do that, it's getting summarized into a one hundred page document that then gets summarized into a five page bullet point piece that I'm told doesn't represent what the scientists are finding. Um, have you got anything to say about that kind of thing? Is that something you recognize in other areas or you can understand that, Kevin? I, I can. It's 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 all about, it's one thing to analyze the data to make decisions. It's another art form about how do you communicate it out to others. And, and we don't do that well enough. And there's two different scenarios. There's one where we do it n not the right way, but it's unintentional. Um, and I'll give you an example. There's times where we do it and it is intentional, like, uh, you know, talking about climate change and stuff. There was lots of news maybe a decade ago that it wasn't real. It wasn't happening. And, and I'm oversimplifying here. But the end of the day, you look at all of that data. Um, there's a trend that shows over time the average temperature is increasing. It, it's true. But like you said, thousands of papers of all these things. Someone took one of those and picked a point in time, let's say 1998, where it happened to have a spike. And then they looked at the 10 years after that. And because there was a spike, the 10 years below it were, were down here. So they say the temperature hasn't risen for 10 years. N not an issue. Yeah. But they took a point in time. If you take 1998 and show the whole thing, the trend is going way up. So that's an example, whether they did it intentionally or not to... I don't know, but that's the challenge is they're not, I'll use the term data literate. They're not, why would you pick an outlier and use that as your baseline? Like that makes no sense. So let's, let's take, make it to a sports analogy. You have a player that scores five goals and five assists a, a season, one season, they get 40 goals or 30 goals. Do you pick that as the baseline? No, no, right? You pick the other ones, but we we see people that see these extraordinary results and they mean that that's, that's the new normal and, and that's the challenge. Now, sometimes that's done deliberately and it's disinformation, but many times it's just because we're not literate enough to know, let's, we don't know the business. We don't know climate. We don't know ozone. So we don't think of it, but if, if we know sports and we use that analogy, they're going to say, no, why would I ever do that? That doesn't make sense. But it, that's what's hard is we're we're seeing information that's not in our business domain, and we make these assumptions with it, and we do these things that are not really data literate with them. Yeah, absolutely. So, in terms of um, AI, because is that something that you're directly involved in in your work or? Is that something that you've got experience of um, in you know in, you know in 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 your life's career, Kevin? In terms of the development of that, and then how data feeds into that, is that something that you understand? Yeah, absolutely, yeah, and, and that's where the statisticians and the data is helpful is is coming up with those types of models and what's relevant. But you still need the human element to interpret it for sure. Yeah, so, um, again talking about relevant topics i also hear a fear narrative that um by 2050 the the robots that we're creating will take over the world the george orwell 1984 um thing where do you sit on that is it still relative because of the human element that you need that it won't happen Exactly. I mean, it won't happen if we don't let it happen, I guess, is the, is the right answer. But it, what you said is they are the fact is they are taking over more and more jobs. But that does not mean that the jobs that are lost are lost. It means the jobs that are taken over by robots go back to the chess analogy. AI 
should do number crunching faster than our brains can do it. Our brains rationalize and reason faster than a computer. Marry them together. So yes, you might lose a job where you're doing for sports number crunching of all that data to find out, you know, what is the right advertisement to place in your sports stadium based off of your your people buying season tickets. But then the human needs to be able to interpret that and add their reason to it. And it will never work if it's just the AI. It, it needs to always be balanced. And we actually see it in current events all the time, people building the AI, they have to train it. They have to give it data. Sometimes the training data is biased and it's it's just, perpetu- it, it ends up ending up with things that are not ethical. And that's why you always need the human element to, to check it with it. So I think if we all sing Kumbaya and work together, it makes us exponentially better but again, we're scared. And so sometimes we don't look at things or want to work with things and we think it's going to compete with us as opposed to thinking of it as we need to evolve. It's a, it's an evolution, not an extinction. Yeah. Okay. Another thing that, that impacts decision-making, that impacts... Um, stress and anxiety in human beings is choice and and the amount of choice that we have in in the world. I think that relates to the amount of data that's that's out there. Um, Have you got anything in your experience that says there are, again, I'm, I'm very aware that I'm asking you really simplistic questions and expecting you to come up with like, answers that you know are far beyond probably what you know what what i mean to ask but in terms of choice um can we get better at at making decisions by because i think if you go into a okay this is you know i'm trying to trying to relate this to 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 the sports field but um so if you've got if you're trying to do a trial and you've got a choice of 30 players to choose from that you wanted to take on three or four of them as, as potential. Um, a lot of those decisions are based on what you see in a 30 minute period. And, and you may be wrong and you don't know um, if you've got more time to do, to do due diligence, then obviously that can help. But what about data and choice in terms of let, let's just say consumers, because a consumer is, is making a choice about what to take or what to purchase at that time. Where'd you sit on that? Yeah, um, good point. There's two parts to it. The part you mentioned at the end about like you don't have enough data to answer, like you only saw them for 30 minutes. I'll I'll come back to that. But in in the overarching sense, it really goes back to the specificity of the question. So like a good example would be with COVID, right? Everyone was freaking out with COVID and then pandemic and, you know, flattened the curve. We all saw all this data, but at the end of the day, that was very overwhelming for people, yet they really didn't, necessarily understand what was happening. To me, it's about focusing on the question. So as I mentioned before, like the question is, I want to live to see my grandkids. Well, this question for me for COVID would be, can I leave the house and not end up in a ICU? Can I leave the house and ensure that my kids, one that maybe is susceptible, not end up? When I get that specificity, it's much easier to make the choice because I've looked at the options, it gives me that answer ABC. Now there might still be some unknown, but it's a lot easier to make the choice than if you don't, you just ask the question, all right, COVID, should I leave the house? Why? Like you're not answering it. Um, The other thing that makes it easier is before you look at the data or in life, when you're asking the question, think out loud and write down what are my viable, what is my risk factor? What am I okay with? So like using the sport analogy, I only have 30 minutes to look at someone. Am I okay? Well, it depends. Am I buying them for a multi-year contract? Am I, can I, can I, you know, get rid of them in a day or two? That's kind of, you're assessing the risk. When you do that upfront, it's much easier on the psychology to make a choice than if you do it at the end, because it just adds that extra burden. So do all that work upfront. And then the choice won't be perfect. It won't be easy, but it'll be easier for sure. <laughs> I just had a flash in my mind, Kevin, and when you were talking about that about dating, because like 
you know, we all yeah. make life choices and it's like, yeah. you know, where does data come in that? <laughs> it's probably yeah. massive now, but I'm not sure it makes any difference to the statistics, but you can probably tell me about that. Um, well, be, I mean, before you swipe left or right, you want to know what you want to look for. And otherwise, if you don't, then you probably make decisions based off of the visual, which may not be what you're looking for, right? Maybe some people do, but it, I think that's a great analogy is know what you want before you go into it. You're going to make better choices. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love the fact that this all comes back to the to the to the human behavior. It, it's wonderful. Um, right, your book. Okay, so so turning data into wisdom. How, if you were to say to look, th th there's a lot of football coaches listening to this podcast. There's a lot of people who have an interest in in the game and um, parents and and so on and players. How can your book specifically help them, whether they are a player, whether they're a coach, um, to be better and, and for them to have a better impact in their in their sphere? Yeah, I think it's a great question. It helps them understand the human element. So it, it, it I mean, there's a little bit of data in there, but you don't have to, again, be a data scientist. It helps you understand that we all have bias. We all have confirmation bias. So first thing, when the brains, when we have an opinion and we see something in the news, we see data, we see facts that validates that opinion, without hesitation, the first thing we do is we say, huh, there's my answer. I proved it. I'm yeah, right. Okay. Let's move on. Yeah. And we ignore yeah. everything else. I mean, if you just take that out of the book, that's going to exponentially help. But then you learn how to challenge assumptions. It's not just about the output. It's it's why it's happening and thinking the word I'll use is systemically to make sure that you're you're getting that true root cause um, and it's going to teach you skills that allow you to do that, like like listening and how do I mitigate this bias? How do I challenge my assumptions? Um, and that's applicable whether it's sport, life, work, whatever. It's it's being able to ask the right question, challenge it, challenge your own bias, challenge your assumptions, and you're going to make better decisions. If I can, let me ask you about active and passive listening because I'm a I'm. I, I do a lot of one-to-one -one work with with people so I have I've got the, the the fortunate I'm in the fortunate situation that I can on a regular basis have 30 minutes on a a regular basis with individual people in a room with nobody else to to disturb us which is not a common thing the, these days um, yeah, it's not. and as much as I've been blessed with 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 an education, and as much much as I've been blessed to learn some skills, for me, Kevin, the biggest thing that impacts people is just the luxury of having somebody sit down and concentrate on them for thirty minutes. Irrelevant. It's almost irrelevant what I say. It's the fact that I'm present there with them, and. and because they almost know all the answers themselves. They just need to, to tell me what they think and for me to confirm or deny that or, or give them a little tweak. It's not that I know anything that's going to change, blow the world apart for them. Um, so talk to me about active and passive listening, because I think it's so so phenomenally awesome as a, as a skill. And um, I'd love to know a little bit more about that from your perspective. Absolutely. Well, like you, the first thing, like you said, it's true. Sometimes people don't like speaking to themselves or talking to the wall. So just talking to someone who's there present is going to help the person who's talking, get their thoughts out. I mean, I, I tend to do that all the time. It's where I get my best ideas, but then the person listening, when you're passive listening, which is kind of the default as humans in general, when you're in a dialogue. So if, if like you're a therapist and your job is to listen, maybe a different story, but we're in a conversation the default for humans is not actually to pay attention to what there's someone saying. It's to think about how you're going to get your next point across to them. So the outcome of passive listening is like win or lose. I want you to agree with me. It's a debate. With active listening, the outcome is not an answer. It's an understanding. My goal as the listener is not to think about what I'm going to say next. It's not to do anything but understand why you're saying what you're saying. Okay. And it sounds easy, but it's really hard because our brains don't work that way. As 
as we're talking, we're always like, oh, but I want to mention this. I, I got to mention this. Oh, no, they didn't. you got to you got to basically tell your brain to shut off and just listen. Um, but then you get the understanding. It's great because it's like the faith to go down the road that the conversation will take you down instead of going down the road that you think you're going to go down. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Spot on. Yeah. It's by having assumption. Yeah. Yeah. Because active listening, you can tell whether you're doing it because it's harder to do, isn't it? Because you will wonder it's harder to do. I mean, I don't want to flower it up any more than that, really. It's harder and it's harder, not just as you, but I'll, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm in a corporate setting for years. You're like, Kevin, you're so quiet in the meeting. Are, are, are you not picking this stuff up? Or like, do you have nothing to add? And I just say like, no, I'm listening. I have a smile on and, and they don't get it because you feel like in business, like you have to say something to show your knowledge. You don't just long story short, listening gets a bad rap because people think it's that you're disinterested. People think that you don't have anything to add. People think you're not smart. When in reality, what you're trying to do is you're really trying to help the person talking by not talking on, over them or by not thinking about how you're going to tell them they're wrong. And I think that's one of the things I struggled with years when I started out in the corporate setting is I'm intentionally quiet because I'm listening. That That's the whole point. But it's seen negatively. I don't know why. And when you look just on that point, Kevin, because it's a lovely point which which resonates extremely strongly with me. So has that experience of yours where you were obviously or apparently obviously engaging in a listening process as, as rather than the the accepted modus operandi of being a voice and having an opinion and and, and, and being in um has that uh how's that played out for you personally has as it as it worked out well is it something that that meant you didn't fit into certain environments or or is it just something that had a longer term burn whereby eventually you know what you were doing yielded great results exactly that's part of the challenge is it's better in the long run but many people are nervous like like the the coach that doesn't do well in the season they're sacked instantly right you you need to have that runway and i was just lucky in the organizations i worked for to have that runway but i will tell you it is very sweet of a like i told you so moment when like six months down the road you're in a meeting and you listen to the person so you said something that they said to validate them. And the person looks at you like, wow, that's exactly how I feel. No one's, no one's doing it. I was like, I know, because no one listened to you. I listened to you. That's why I don't talk because I listen. And then you see their smile. It makes it all worth it. But you're right. It, it does take time to play out. It's not something that is, it, it's almost like you go down before you go up. No, it's so interesting it. because in professional football, um, it's like if you're in, if you're loud, if you're popular, um, what's you know you're outgoing, um, you appear confident. Yep, type A personality. Yep. Yeah, you're extrovert. You have a much greater chance of being a big success. I'm being extremely low resolution in this. In this, whereas the opposite, the thinker, the quiet one, the listener, um, shows a vulnerability, um, possibly you know, possibility of being bullied, overshadowed, pushed out of the way. Um, it's really interesting what you say, um, and it's great to hear. Um, I think we're having a little bit of a sea change, but as with a lot of industries, it's extremely slow. Um, yeah. But you can only be yourself, Kevin. I ultimately, otherwise, it's going to end up in in failure. Exactly. If you ask me, exactly. And it's sport, it's life, it's corporations. I mean, it's the same thing in business. Is uh, exactly what you said. So, and we, here we are talking to a data analyst who understands data, and we're talking about <laughs> human behavior. Huh? So it's. It's great. Um, there was one more thing from your book I wanted to talk about. Okay. Um, under, here we go. Here we go. It was um, 
understanding why conf- why you think conflict is good and why good organizations encourage conflict um i i think i know in 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 a couple of organizations i'm in at the moment uh what well, certainly one uh conflict is 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 avoided um people talk about other people and situations instead of just having an honest conversation um and I, I, it's, it's not it's not successful in my humble opinion and yeah so to, go on let's 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 drag that out yeah. before we finish because it's a great one absolutely and, and you're right it's the interesting thing about conflict is you know from a science point of view a team and this goes for sports too you see it all the time in american sports the most talented team does not win. It's the team that has the most diversity. And, and that goes in business, right? You take people with the highest IQ, you yeah. give them a complicated challenge, you give people that are completely different, introvert, extrovert, think or feel, all those things, give them the same task, they're going to complete it better, faster, quicker, because diversity is better. So when you have conflict, the reason conflict happens is you have two people that think differently about a strategy or something, but they're not listening to the other person. They're they're doing what we just started. They're saying my way, my way, my way. But if you just listen, you're understanding why on a personal level, you're going to respect each other more because it's about understanding the differences on a strategic level. That difference is going to be why we got our answer. I mean, going back to my example with my son, if the school didn't listen to me about their assumption being wrong, we'd be in a whole different ballgame. You'd be outsourced different... But, but the conflict was, you're wrong, here is why they listened. And, and so I think in sports and workplaces, there are different ways of doing things. You're not going to innovate. Like you said, there's kind of a changing of the seed. How many years are people doing the exact same thing, but there's that up-and-comer that wants to do something different, but is too scared to tell the, the coach or the head coach because they don't want to listen. Conflict, productive conflict, healthy conflict, encourage that person to say, hey, I think we should use this strategy and then it requires the coach to listen and understand why, and then work on a, that common understanding. Hard to do because our brains don't work like that. We like to be right or wrong, not to be understood. And so it, it, it takes a practice. You can do workshops on it in corporate settings. You can have teams get together and do these things where you have dialogues versus discussion. But the teams that do that, they win. The companies that do that, they drive more revenue and they innovate faster. Absolutely. Yeah, no, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. So, just as a matter of interest, Kevin, what what do you spend most of your time doing now in your in your you know, this stage of your career with them? Um, you know, all the stuff you've got behind you and your books and so on. Yeah, I, I think half of the time, well, a good portion of the time is is going out passionately trying to educate. I mean, this is good for school, it's good for corporations, it's good for sports. But I still believe that the world changes so fast that you got to keep up on things. And I don't want to ever get to the point where I forget how to learn. So I'm always going out reading like the latest trends on brains, neuropsychology, climate, all those things. I'm not a book reader per se. I just like reading like research papers, news reports. And it it gives me a lot of stories and examples to infuse into these things. Um, but it it really comes down to trying to help people maximize decisions learning and teaching and you do that you do you do speaking and and you go into into companies and things like that yeah companies no sports yet so anyone listening feel free to reach out but definitely companies and talk about how they can you know do productive conflict to get that innovation or how we do a lot of workshops on making sure people are aware that the brains have a bias and avoid confirmation bias avoid challenging assumptions things like that. Um, that's a lot of what I do in my day job and what I do in my spare time um, being kind of a teacher at heart. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, look, in 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 a short 45 minutes or so, it's been a cracky. You've 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 answered all my questions. You've padded out all of, all the bits about and made me feel really good that um there's nothing to be scared of. Um nice. It's as married to human uh, being a human being as as you know. It's almost something that's that adds to being a human. It doesn't take it doesn't take away and and um, can make our lives much better. So 
it, it's been great to speak. How can um, people get hold of you, Kevin, if um, if they want to find out more about, you know, what you do and your work and um, and so on? Yep, just go to my website, kevinhannigan.com. I have links to LinkedIn. People can connect links to the book, links to um, free blogs, videos, training, and my email address if anyone wants to reach out. Beautiful. Well, I can only end by saying thank you for your time, Kevin. I always appreciate anybody's time, and um, you've been an absolute gentleman, and uh, I really hope that um, everybody gets out of this what I, I very selfishly personally got out of it because it's been great. So thank you ever so much. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Well, thank you, Kevin, for a wonderful hour, which absolutely flew by. And uh, I just wanted to reflect a little bit on the interview with Kevin. I think it's really timely because one thing that we're not short of in the world today is information. And the availability of information is beyond what we as human beings can can consume and I think one of the most powerful things that we can do is to focus and hone in on what it is that is of value to us and what we need you know we're in a war with the capitalist world if you like in terms of our focus and our attention tech companies product designers marketing companies everybody in the world who sells wants our attention and we as individuals have to be aware of that and as data gets increasingly complex and increasingly readily available and also on a much bigger scale. It increases the need for us to be focused. And I think Kevin's work can be ultimately powerful for us and can be an, an enormous facet of value. I mean, what a great title for a book, Turning Data Into Wisdom. What if we could do that to a much greater degree? How good would we be? How powerful would we be? How much better would our lives be? How much more relaxed would we be? It's a great question. And there's a couple of things I want to reflect on in Kevin's interview. The, the most fundamental one is, I think, the, the outcome or the understanding that to all intents and purposes, we can allay the fear that artificial intelligence and data is going to take over the world. The two are different things, obviously, but they're interlinked. Interlinked, And one of the things that kept coming through in the conversation was the necessity and the relevance and the, rel and the relationship of being human plus data. Data on its own is just a block of stone. Together with a human being, it is a powerful tool. And no matter where we went with the conversation we kept coming back to the aspect of humanness and psychology. And Kevin talks about that great experiment with chess where there was a, a grandmaster against artificial intelligence and the grandmaster ultimately won. And then it was artificial intelligence plus an average player who every time beat a grandmaster. That's worth thinking about. It's the human element that's important here and it's using that data successfully and it and we come back to don't we goal setting because it's knowing what you want primarily your goal your objective that then is the platform for you to ask the right question what do I need here? What is the most powerful thing here? What would be the most effective piece of information here? That then leads you to the correct piece of data. So without the goal setting and without the 
question, the data loses its power. It has to be melded with human psychology. And the other two great things that came out of the conversation for me, just to finish off, were the element of diversity, where Kevin talked about having all this data, but having people of different skill sets, analysts, creative thinkers, people who are workers who carry out the task, so that you bring all these people together and all these different skill sets together, rather than just have one single individual ploughing a furrow with so much missing. And that happens in so many successful teams. And the most beautiful thing, or one of the most beautiful things that came out of it was the listening conversation and how if we engage in active listening and we really listen to the person instead of wondering and thinking about how we're going to formulate our response and we follow the track of the conversation, it will lead us through a process of understanding, which is the journey we need to go on. Not the journey of, I'm going to go down this road to prove myself right. The first one is humility and openness and leads to understanding and great relationships. The other one is closed, ego-driven and leads to poorer relationships. I think it's obvious which one is the best road to take. And I think it's also pretty appropriate to say it's the road less travelled. That's leader, manager, coach, Kevin Hannigan. Thank you, Kevin. Grab hold of his book. It's on Amazon. Well worth looking at. Catch you later. Bye-bye.